a number of circumstances came together where we had a significant mayday. And that era of the, of the mid-90s or so, um, I think we were still trying, we knew about lightweight construction, but we were still using a farmhouse kind of a tactic. We thought we could just go right in there no matter where the fire was and, and open up a two and a half and put the thing out. We didn't, you know, we didn't, we knew about collapse, we knew about flashover, but we hadn't internalized that. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and we're officially coming to you from the road now. Uh, I've got the opportunity to, to do a little traveling this week, and uh, by doing so, I was able to run into Beaufort, South Carolina, and run across an old friend from Virginia, and from outside of Central Virginia, most of our guests to this point have been from around Richmond, but uh, joining me today is... Uh, Keith Brower, the retired fire chief from the Loudoun County Combined Fire and Rescue Systems. Keith, uh, thanks for having me, and I'm glad there's no so- snow in South Carolina. What's snow? Exactly. So you've already you've already broken the Virginia mold. Although I did see we have a, a chance of some white stuff coming down here late next week, which is kind of odd. Yeah, you're going to move further south now? No, is that the- no we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll just throw another log on the fire. Oh, great. Well, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me and uh, letting me come by and visit. Absolutely. And, uh, catching up and uh, putting some thoughts down into this podcast. And uh, like I told you, we really want to kind of document the history and culture and legacies of the fire departments. And uh, you're one of the few fire marshals I know that was smart enough to get promoted to fire chief in Loudoun. Um, we, we met as fellow fire marshals in Virginia working on a bunch of different stuff. But uh, let's go back even further than that. How did, uh, how did you get your start in fire and EMS? Um, as the stories have it, uh, when I was about four years old, I, I, uh, I lived in Percival, Virginia, and it was a volunteer fire department, and we lived on Main Street, probably um, the equivalent of three or four city blocks from the, from the fire station, town blocks. And my dad was a volunteer, and he had been in the company since 1952. Uh, I was born in 56, so we got to go back to about 1960. And the story was that every time the town fire siren went off and he <clears throat> would jump up and get in the car and run down to the station, that I was I was as close to being on his heels as I possibly could as a, as a four-year-old. Um, obviously, I don't remember that, but that's the stories I was told. But um, I always loved the fire department um as a kid in school um i would uh, after school ride my bike around town and during the summertime uh and the firehouse was was always the stop and many times there was nobody there again it was a 100 percent volunteer company but the door was usually open and i could go in and just you know amaze myself with uh, this this red shiny uh you know fire truck and and uh, just in, enjoyed the smell of the station, and just admired the turnout gear, and said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to do that." And um, so um, I had the opportunity um, in 1973. Um, the uh, 
fire company decided that they were going to introduce a junior firefighter program. Uh, Loudoun had several, um, had the time, like 12 fire companies or so, and several of the other departments had had junior programs um, intact, and, and so Percival decided to model off of, off, of, off of those, and they took in six of us who were 16 years old. And um, I, uh, I think when I found out we were going to be uh, in the company, um, you know, it was just added more excitement and anticipation. We couldn't get voted in until January 1st, 1973, but by virtue of already going to the firehouse, uh, you just felt like you were that much more a part of it. And I remember distinctly a, a fire in late 72 that happened, and uh, we actually, me and another one of the junior members, actually went to the, went to the fire. The first we didn't, one. The we, first didn't have, fire. We, didn't have, we didn't have gear, but it was close enough to the station in, in the small town that we could get down there and just, just marvel at, at everything that was going on. So that's that's when I started in uh, in '73, um, follow, following my dad's footsteps, and uh, I was hooked. So you went on to be a volunteer there in Percival. Is that uh, kind yes. of the line? Um, I volunteered there, and um, in 1974, graduated from high school. Had the opportunity to go to a small school, small college, uh, Bridgewater College, uh, in the Harrisonburg area, and. Um, you know, enjoyed college, but, and was still volunteering on my, uh, on my breaks and, you know, holidays when we would go home. But I, uh, I couldn't get past still that whole thing of wanting to go and hang out at the firehouse. And so I would go in and, uh, introduce myself to a couple guys and they kind of got to know me and ask questions. This was in Harrison. This was in like Bridgewater, college, yeah. in Bridgewater at college. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so, um, Probably my second year, my sophomore year, um, I'd been down there enough. And so uh, one of the guys says, well, you know, we're, we're not much on college students. We haven't had really good success with college students. You know, they, they aren't always responsible and can't depend on them and stuff like that. But if you, you know, we need some help during the daytime. And if you'd like to, like to do this, you know, we'll, we'll give you a shot. So that to me was... Um, I kind of tell people I was a volunteer fireman, um, and then I also went to college. <laughs> so college was the part-time gig. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and that served, you know, I've told people, I think that really served to solidify uh, the interest I had in making this a career. I think if I'd have had um, four years of long breaks between, you know, running calls and things like that, I might have lost interest. But I think being able to, attend class and then you know you got an eight o'clock class and a 10 o'clock class and the rest of the day's years i would just take my books down there and study and run calls i'd run calls on the weekend um i think if i hadn't had that it you know might not have gelled that gelled that desire to to pursue it as a career uh, i also um while down there the uh, city of harrisonburg did have a volunteer program and uh, also became part of that and, and ran quite a few calls in the city either on Bridgewater's apparatus or Harrisonburg's apparatus. Um, and, and we ran a lot of fires, um, big fires. And so I saw things from a different perspective in a, in a small city uh, with, with bigger buildings as compared to more rural location, you know, with sparse housing or a barn fire or whatever. So I really got to see that, that end of it. 
And so I graduated in 78 and then went to work in Fairfax County um, in 1978. And um, in 1981, got my instructor certification. So I was doing a lot of teaching predominantly back in Loudoun County. Loudoun County at the time did not have a centralized training academy. All the, all the training was pretty much done in the engine bay. You know, you pull the trucks out, you set the chairs up, and then half the class would leave if you had a, had a call. But I, you know, I did that for a number of years, and uh, there was talk of building a training academy in Loudoun County. It was just a matter of finding the right, right parcel where we could be a good neighbor, where we wouldn't, where we would have decent, um, the, the capability to put decent facilities up. So in uh, 1984, um, a job for the fire training coordinator position uh, came open. I applied for it and was, uh, was awarded that job. So I left Fairfax County um, and went to work literally like the next week um, in, in Loudoun as the fire training officer. Did they have, did Loudoun County have any paid staff at that point, or is this just training for all the volunteer companies in the county? I just have to say it was 98% probably the volunteer companies um, the, the county at the time was more of an administrative support structure. Um, there were the dispatchers answering, you know, 911 calls. Um, fire training staff at the time was just one. EMS training staff was one. And uh, we had several, uh, probably three at the time, fire inspectors, maybe four fire inspector investigators. Um, and then some administrative clerical staff. I, I think the number was somewhere around 18 people when I went to work in, in 84. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, sort of time rolls on, the county starts developing, we start having um, more staff added, we got additional training staff, there was a additional fire marshal staff, additional dispatchers um, added. Um, now, interestingly enough, uh, we did have one volunteer company um, that had approached the county uh, association about needing help. It was the Sterling Volunteer Fire Company. And they're located right on the Fairfax County line. So not only was Sterling a sort of a built-up residential area, but they were also, you know, pretty close to, to Fairfax County um, where they could provide mutual aid and receive mutual aid um, because they were closer companies in Fairfax than, than other places in Loudoun. Um, they had approached our old association uh, with regard to uh, hiring, <clears throat> having the county, excuse me, having the county put a career person in there. A, a, one, a, one body. A, just a driver, just to make sure the truck gets out. Yep, that's the way it starts. And um, the association turned them down. And um, so what the agreement finally came to be was that Sterling would hire the person and then pay for that person out of their coffers and then the county would do a reimbursement back to the company and so it was just a it was a money money trade but at the end of the day in uh, 74 time frame sterling got a uh, got a career driver uh, that was expanded to a second position in about 76 and then a third position in about 85 but again, all all these positions were being paid by Sterling, that's with re, with 
county money coming back to reimburse. Why, why did the and you say the association was there a county association of all the volunteer departments yeah. and that was the yeah the group that said essentially we don't want them working for the county we want them working for you I, yeah. as a volunteer company. Yeah, I think they were you know it, as with any uh, talk about tradition um, and the pride we have um, as volunteers. There was a fear that um, there would be. You know, this is the beginning of the end. You know, right. it's going to be the takeover. It's going to be the whatever. And you know, customer service, you know, didn't seem to be as as Mrs. Smith didn't exist back in in that line of thought as as much as Mrs. Smith exists today. Um, but I got that. I mean, I, I you know, I probably at the time as a volunteer wasn't wasn't too hyped up about Loudoun County having you know any any sort of career staff, but. Uh, the way it was worked out, it was certainly effective, and that and that model lasted until somewhere around the '89 time frame when the county then began its first hiring of its own career staff to put in other stations who had requested that staff. It made no sense to have um, 10 or 12 people paid for by the county, and then Sterling's three people, you know, being Please. paid for by them. So they were just through an agreement, just rolled into the directly into the county payroll. Uh, there was a system worked out for those initial guys that those three guys that um, did allow them to participate in the Virginia retirement system and got them on the county's group health. Oh, cool. So they they didn't lose any, uh, for the most part, didn't lose any benefits by not being true county employees. But in ninety eighty nine ninety time frame, that that all changed. They all went to they be just, county. They employees. just became county employees. So what, what path did your career take then from uh, training, from the training division? Did you go into operations or did you go somewhere else after that? Yeah, my original title was chief of training and operations, chief of fire training and operations. Uh, we didn't really have much of an operations end of it at that time, but there was always that unofficial um, – you know, if you hear, if you're in the community, in a community, and you hear the call, we we kind of think you ought to go because they might need the extra help. And then, you know, there was sort of a, again an unofficial. Um, if the volunteer chief didn't show up, then you were sort of unofficially expected to help run that scene. But I spent many a time in my car uh, arriving on the scene, scotting up and and pulling a hose line and going in. Uh, you know, going in on the attack or throwing ladders or doing whatever was necessary. Um, there were numerous occasions where I was en route and a particular tanker or engine hadn't gotten out and the chief was radioing back, here, heard me on the radio and said, hey, stop, stop and pick up the tanker or stop and pick up the truck. And so I would pull over and drive the truck. So you became kind of the utility infielder to the yep. to the fire ground officer. Hey, we need a, we need a, Command officer, you yeah. end up taking command, or we need a tanker driver, go get a tanker. Yeah, my favorite was the uh, Luckett's Volunteer Fire Department, which is out on Route 15 uh, towards uh, the Maryland line crawl where before you cross the Potomac River. Um, they had, a, uh, I think, a 3,500-gallon tanker on a Chevrolet gasoline uh, platform, and it had the, uh, the, the, the double shifters in it. It had the two, two shifts in it. And... Uh, course you were a real man if you could uh drive that thing shift them both and then shift them both 
And there was a particular technique that you had to use because I'm like, well, how in the world do you do that? So one of the guys uh, got me out there one afternoon because he said, I, you know, we need this tanker, and if you, if you, if you need to bring it, um, you need to know how to drive it. And um, so in the span of about 35 minutes, we had been on some back roads, and I had that thing shifting like a charm. What you had to do was uh, have your right hand on, the, on, the, uh, on one shifter, and then you reached through the steering wheel to get the other shifter, and you used your forearm to steer. Hands to, hands to double shift. Hands to double shift. You had both hands shifting. Heard of double clutch and never double shift. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was quite the experience um, in doing that. Um, I don't think I ever wound up having to bring it on a call, but I was certainly prepared. So um, be- beginning in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, the county did, in fact, um, did get requests from the volunteer companies to, to put staffing in, mainly in the east end of the county, four stations, um, because they were the closest counties to where the development was happening. The development in Loudoun County pretty much moved from the east to the west. And as those communities began to grow and get more calls, it was no longer feasible for the employer to let their employee off, say, you know, three or four times a day. I mean, once in a week or twice a week is not too bad if you're an employer, but when it got to be more demand, uh, a lot of that daytime response of volunteers was shut off. And so um, the county was asked uh, to put those staff in, and they needed um, a level of supervision and that fell under me and then um, as time went on there was a lull of probably four or five years and then the next big wave of hiring hit where other companies uh, now were pushing into the you know early uh, late 90s early 2000 time frame and those companies um, were adding more career staff and so that job became a little bit more um, I had a lot more responsibility, I guess, at that point in time. So I did that um, for approximately, I don't know, 13 plus years, 15 years in that in that general time frame. By that time, um, our staffing had had surpassed 100 career staff, um, and I was still responsible for a lot of the volunteer coordination stuff too. So. Um, you had to sort of pay attention to the career staff's needs, but you're also responsible for meeting the needs of the volunteer companies and serving on their, com- you know, participating in, and helping them out on their co- uh, committees and, and things like that. So uh, we were in a position where um, there was more administrative work needed on, on my part, to, and I couldn't balance, there just was not enough hours in the day to balance out that. So we were able to hire um, two battalion chiefs that then broke that uh, broke that next le- layer of supervision to where there was in, in between me and the stations and that, that was a great relief and it was, a, it was the beginning of the way the fire departments are supposed to be structured with an area supervisor and then in um, 2003 uh, I had the opportunity to um, go to the fire marshal's office become the county fire marshal Uh, I had always enjoyed the prevention aspect. Um, I'd actually been part of, um, I won't necessarily, I was integral, but I was involved in in trying to understand the adoption of the Virginia Statewide Fire Prevention Code. 
We're still trying to do that, by the way. Yeah, we are. Well, it was it started off good. Uh, yeah. Um, so I was I was enough aware of what the state regulation uh, and the statutes were at the time as kind of as background. So when the position came open, it's not like I had to relearn, well, this is the fire code, this is the building code. I already knew how those two codes interacted, what state law mandated, what you could do with the fire code what, what versus what you can't do with the, with the building code. And so um, I jumped at that opportunity. I thought it was always one of the most interesting jobs that, that, that could be had in the, in the fire service. And so that, uh, that transfer took place in 2003, and I was there for five and a half years. And then uh, in 2010, um, our outgoing um, fire chief, Joe Pozo, at the time, um, he was taking the job in Florida, and he approached me, and he said, I think you need to be the next fire chief. And I kind of looked at him, and I said, no. <laughs> no. I said, I'm, I'm perfectly content to retire out. I love the fire marshal's office. I love learning something every day because you can't learn it all and the unique experiences and, you know, frankly, the opportunity to participate more on state-level and national-level initiatives where you can really feel like you can have some impact. And uh, he said, no. He says, I think you need to be the next fire chief. And uh, so he asked me if I would consider going meeting with the new county administrator. We'd had a change in administrators within that year prior. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go over. Well, the administrator sits me down, real nice conversation. He says, I think you need to be a new fire chief. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so the interview process was pretty much that? Yeah. Well, no, it was a, uh, I must say, it was a, a, a formal interview process, and there were a number of candidates that were interviewed. But um, the system was at a, I think, at a one of its many critical crossroads and um, by that time, there were a lot of county, a lot of personnel, county employees being utilized in the station. The governance structure of the county fire rescue system was an old commission framework. Um, the fire chief was one of seven representatives. So the fire chief was prohibited from being the chair or the chair, co-chair of the commission. But yet, who has... The, the the responsibility at the end of the day and the board of supervisors was changing it was um no longer the homegrown board um that had been entrenched in loudon and and done marvelous things for a number of years but the county was changing i tell people it was no no longer aunt b and uncle frank on the on on the board of supervisors and and they were trying to meet the needs of of their constituents who were also coming to Loudoun in, in, in large numbers. So, so at this point was it was it really called Loudoun County Combined Fire and Rescue no, System? That was no. that happened after you no, were chief. Okay. We were we were Loudoun County Fire Rescue Services and there were the seventeen uh, fire and EMS departments, um, uh, 12, 13 fire companies and half dozen EMS companies. Uh, so um, it was really two systems functioning parallel, um, and that just that just was not going to carry us into the into the future. Um, so the 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 combined fire and rescue system was actually the product of a board of supervisors um, 
government review committee that was established in 2011 or so that was to look at all county services in terms of efficient operations. Uh, fire and rescue was uh, clearly uh, one of their concerns uh, as much as for that period of time as well as building us into the, into the future. And so um, the Board of Supervisors ultimately took the recommendations of a subcommittee that called for the establishment of uh, a countywide fire chief and, and one system. Uh, there was no infringement on the, the ability of a, com a volunteer company to stay as a volunteer company. It was just more they were going to be under the umbrella of a system-wide approach um, to function more cohesively. Um, and so in um, 2014, the Board of Supervisors created the Loudoun County Fire and Rescue, Combined Fire and Rescue System. I was the, I was changed over from the chief of the department to the combined system chief. Um, and to, to back all that up, there was a, an ordinance put into place establishing um, the system, clarifying the roles and responsibilities of the chief, and clarifying the roles and responsibilities of the, of the volunteers and how, how policy was to be governed, developed and governed through um, so that's the system that's that's in place today. When that when that change happened, um, can you is was there any you know? I haven't been a volunteer. I kind of know that volunteers mentality of the county's taking us over. But you made a comment that the those volunteer departments come under the umbrella of the county's system now. Did did they get any um, benefits to their independent organizations from um, money? insurance, uh, liability protection because of the, the way the ordinance was crafted? Um, yes and no. Um, the county, <clears throat> Latin County had always been very good to the volunteer companies as far as giving them, making sure there was um, a contribution, what they called it. It wasn't a, wasn't, it wasn't an operating budget, let's say. It was a contribution. Mm -hmm. um, but it was public dollars. Um, and so those companies, uh, the companies actually, for a number of years, had gotten county contributions. And as the board of supervisors would look at the, the CPI every year, if it necessitated an adjustment of 1%, 2%, 3%, they would increase those company budgets. The problem was uh, there was a formula that had been done probably back in the um, 80s or 90s, and the formula hadn't kept up with the cost of apparatus. Um, and so... There, there was more of a need to create um, a, a better budgeting strategy for the volunteers. So under their corporate charters, uh, as long as they remain a viable 501c3 corporation, they can raise their own funds, uh, they can buy their apparatus, uh, own their own apparatus, buy their own turnout gear. Um, they can pretty much function on that, on the administrative, on the business end, they can function as an independent agency. But the 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 countywide umbrella was more to create a sense of operational cohesiveness, um, kind of one one policy, yes, procedure, training yes. standards, that yes. sort of thing. Yes, and we used to have county SOPs, and the volunteer companies had their own um, documents, um, and 
you know, one of my first things as, as the combined system chief was to move us towards what were called SWP, system-wide procedures. So a lot of the county documents and the volunteer documents, they were very similar um, in, in many respects. It was just a matter of merging them and putting a new title head on. But they had to, we had to go through a reissuance process, and so now there's one set of policies and procedures. Uh, you asked about resistance, and, and there was, and you can understand that. I could understand that. And, um, you know, I'm kind of proud to say in one respect that when it came to putting career staff in a station, um, I think with, with, with one minor, one or two minor exceptions, we never put career staff in without a request from the company. We always wanted to make sure that um, even if there was kicking and screaming that, that that corporation had collectively voted officially and sent the county a request for staffing. And, you know, it was largely because daytime calls, um, but as time went on, there was, there was circumstances where we needed to, to put 24-hour coverage in. Did, did the volunteers ride with paid staff? Was there a blending of the crews? Um, n- not to the extent that I believed we should have had it, um, I think if there's one thing I look back on is I didn't get far enough with that. Um, my intent was that they would um, because we had developed training standards for the volunteers. Um, and for the large part, they mirrored the hiring standards and training requirements for career staff. The real stick, sticking point was the, uh, was the medicals. Um, volunteers were at the time not required to to meet NFPA 1582, um, <clears throat> particularly EMS only volunteers, um, and that's that was just a long-standing rule. But um, the theory was, you know, if this person's not getting a complete physical um, or getting getting an annual physical uh, com- compared to the career staff, that person presents a risk to the crew, and I couldn't. I couldn't argue that, and, and I'm in by no means saying that all of the career staff were in 100% tip-top condition, but you had a standard, and everybody was working towards that standard. And on my one of the last things, one of the last kind of big policy decisions was the discussion on all volunteers having mandatory um, 1582 physicals and recurring physicals. Um, and I think one of the things that spurred that on is we were offering them as options to the volunteers. Um, and, and some would take it. They realized it was a free, free benefit. Um, uh, one, of our, one of our members went in and they found a cardiac issue, a severe cardiac issue that was just waiting to happen. And just discovered through the discovered through routine the, physical. Through the routine physical that he opted to take. And uh, he sort of became the, the poster child for the effort to, to basically say, no, you, you, you guys, we need to do this. We need to do this. Um, So that that took place. uh, That became official within a year or so after I retired. So I, I, you know, I, I think had that been in place, I think we would have gotten farther on integrated crews. Um, And we we were making some steps, particularly in our stations that we staffed as EMS by integrating crews because we were focused more on paramedic certification. And if we had a volunteer ALS provider we could put on a medic unit, that only only enhances that level Mm -hmm. of service. 
So there was some of that going on, but I don't. It, it, it didn't get to where I I, I wanted it um, in my mind when I started out seven and a half years earlier. Gotcha. Um, switching gears just a little bit um, in your time there, and I've tried to do the math here really quick. Nearly a hundred. No, that's that's easy math. If I get about forty years or so in in Loudon between your volunteer time, yeah, forty time in Fairfax and forty just shy forty five. Yeah, gotcha. Um, what any big incidents that come out in your mind either when you were there as a training volunteer, at the fire marshal or the chief? Any big incidents that uh, really stick out in your mind as memorable, kind of shaping the the way the department thinks or operates? Well, just from my personal perspective, my first year uh, in the in the fire service as a volunteer, um, the first call I went on was a was a working house fire. I think the second or third call I went on was a, a fatality accident. Um, Easter of 1974, we had a, a a house fire in Percival's first due that killed two little girls on Easter Easter morning. That summer, we had a fatality house fire in the neighboring town of Round Hill. And then, just for fun, in December of 1974, we had the TWA plane crash mm-hmm. on, on uh, Blue Ridge Mountain, and that killed 92 people. Um, for for somebody just coming in at that age, it was uh, it was quite the first you know year or so to see to see all of that. Uh, we probably didn't have uh, you know, fatality house fires, maybe maybe one to two um, every other year or so. And then, you know, we had three involving kids, two of them involving kids uh, my first year, uh, almost back to back. But I think um, I, would, I would say that my career afforded me the opportunity to see the, the impact that fire has today attributable to um, modern construction, you know, I've harped on that for a few years, but I've been in house fires where, um, you would arrive and we had this old concept called a room and contents because that, that fire, that construction was holding that, uh, was, was holding that fire, the com- combined with legacy furniture, it was holding that fire to that room for the you know, 10, 12 minutes it took to get that fire reported and toned out and units there. Uh, you'd get there and you'd drag a hose line in and put the fire out. Um, compared to today where we roll up and you've got a building where the fire's already in the roof or through the roof uh, or, or fully involved in the, in the span of, of minutes. We can't get there fast enough today. And so to, to see that transition... And then to be part of an incident where, in 1998, where we unfortunately had a situation where a number of circumstances came together where we had a significant mayday. And that era of the, of the mid-90s or so, um, I think we were still trying, we knew about lightweight construction, but we were still using a farmhouse kind of a tactic. We thought we could just go right in there no matter where the fire was, and, and open up a two and a half and put the thing out. We didn't, you know, we didn't, we knew about collapse. We knew about flashover, but we hadn't internalized that uh, to the degree that I think we now have um, studied through UL 
and 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 people are more cognizant of that. Was, Repl- it, was that the Meadowood fire? Or yes, that, yeah. um, May twenty fifth, uh, two thousand eight. Um, you know, I think that we're. It's kind of interesting where we've come from uh, and what we're going back to. But the early days, we didn't have a lot of breathing apparatus on trucks, so you were constantly putting water in from the outside to knock that fire down to make it tenable till somebody else showed up with a mask and then go go through overhaul. Um, you, in fact, you were often chided for being the outside firefighter. Oh, you got to go in and get it. Well, I don't have a breathing apparatus. We don't we don't have enough money to buy them. Um, and it's now where we've where we've come to to apply water from the exterior uh, as a means of cooling or resetting the fire. We do that now because a it works. Um, and the science shows it works. And the yeah. science shows it works. I grew up for 30-plus years thinking we were pushing fires, being taught we were pushing fire. Um, I think science is, has, has ruled that out. And so it's kind of interesting to see not only a change in construction and types of fires that are happening, but how the techniques have sort of gone back to old basics of, of dinosaur land, um, and we're, we're putting water from the outside. But that's, that's what we have to do. And by doing that, we're, we're making that environment uh, more tenable for the victims inside, but we're also reducing the risk to firefighters for collapse and, and being trapped in a flashover. And that, you know, if you want to unpack that Meadowood incident, that's a, it's one that sticks with me and I wasn't aware of it until we connected as fire marshals. And then you started sharing that story of those, that crew that got stuck in that house yep. and called May Day. You want to talk about that one a little bit more? Uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, May 25th, uh, 2008, beautiful spring day, uh, 71 degrees, a little bit of light wind. Um, I was at home and had the radio on, and there was a, a tone out for a commercial building fire in Leesburg, Ross Department Store. And um, normally uh, we have two uh, assistant fire marshals working at that time. And because it was a commercial building uh, and a multi-company response, both of those uh, fire marshals went to that call. Again, I'm still the county fire marshal at that time. Uh, Almost on the heels of that dispatch and units marking up, they dispatched another call for a house fire at 43238 Meadowood Court. Same general geographic area. It's a little bit to the east of Leesburg, but... Uh, same general geographic area, so the response complement is almost the same. Well, those initial units are still tied up on the commercial building fire, which turned out to be a minor incident. But nonetheless, resources were were committed and not as easily to they would they wouldn't have been included in the dispatch queue. So, being the county fire marshal, knowing my knowing my two guys on the street are committed, I'm I'm like, eh. Might just head that way. Well, then radio traffic comes back that it's, they believe it to be a working fire. By that time, um, the, some of the response crews, the, everybody was out of position on that call. So we were pulling companies in as far as east as Fairfax County to almost to Leesburg, which was like their fifth due uh, for all intent and purposes. And uh, so as units started freeing up from the department store incident, uh, I believe the fire. The, I believe they released at least one of the fire marshals, maybe both. But anyway, I was already en route, and uh, I was probably 12 miles away. And from a vantage point where we lived, kind of in a hilly area of the county, um, I could see the column of smoke. I'm, I'm 12 plus miles away, 
<clears throat> with no units there yet? No units, no units there yet. So um, what would have most likely been one of our, uh, like our second due, second due engine, perhaps wound up being uh, the first arriving, um, had already been prepped that it was a working incident. Um, what we did not find out, and I think this is very important um, in the data in the data and, and radio CAD world is, um, and you can hear this on the tape because uh, we chronicled this fire, we synced up audio and a neighbor's video. Um, you can hear this plainly that that the person calling in the in the incident says there's nobody home, and she says the fire's on the uh, first floor of the house. Um, due to the activity that was going on in the communications center, uh, that critical information was not passed on to the responding units through the CAD system. So, um, and, and, and we had a procedure that there was the initial dispatch, tones drop, second dispatch, and then when units mark up, we did the third general announcement. Well, the third general announcement is where all, the, all that detail is relayed, as well as being relayed you know, in the CAD mm -hmm. system. So uh, there were issues with CAD that day, and because of the activity, dispatch never got to the third general announcement. So all of that critical, detailed information as to the, you know, nobody's home and, and uh, where the fire was, um, was not relayed on. So the first arriving engine gets there. We've got a working fire, looks to be in the attic. Um, nobody's meeting us in the front yard. No car in the driveway. Nobody's meeting us in the front yard. Um, you know, we're going to do an offensive attack. And so the, uh, the engine officer um, completed a, a 360, but due to the construction of, the, of the, what we call the bump out in the back of the house, he, he was, his view was obscured uh, to the fire that had actually started on the, first, started on the outside of the first floor. Uh, and was beginning to progress up. On so, the back, so the, the fire was side, on the back side of the, the house. On the Charlie side, on the back side, yeah. So um, having done the 360, they thought the fire was it was in the second floor and in the attic, which it was, uh, but it was also on the first floor, and the, it just was missed. And uh, the, the crew advanced a line, um, two-story house, advanced a line through the front door, turned left, went up the set of staircases, to the upstairs bedrooms where um, there was a landing uh, from one side of the house to the other. And uh, they were in back bedroom fighting fire. <clears throat> and uh, they reported conditions of heavy smoke, uh, limited visibility, high heat, all the, all the classic signs now that we know are, are, are related to flashover. And uh, Numerous radio, numerous radio traffic. Well, then their hose line went limp. What had happened is the fire um, had blossomed from below, which from I the believe first floor. on the first floor, which I believe was the was the flashover. Um, but the heat was significant enough to melt their hose line going up the staircase. We actually had to pull the hose line. With we had to actually cut the hose line that was melted out of the out of the melted carpet. And then almost simultaneously, there was a collapse on the back side of the structure. So I don't know which happened first. The hose line went dead or the collapse started, but it was all within literally seconds. And at the same time, they had called the Mayday. And uh, so there was four operating uh, upstairs 
um, two off the two off the engine and one off the ladder, I believe. Or no, excuse me, two and two. Anyway, doesn't matter. The um, lieutenant from the ladder crew had had gotten separated from the three others. Uh, the the three were able to crawl to the far end of the house, <clears throat> opposite where the fire was, and they were able to seclude themselves um, in a room that had a window exit, a little bonus room or bump out room. They first crawled into the bathroom uh, because again, there was no visibility. The office, the, the unit officer was savvy enough to realize he was hitting tile floor after coming off a carpet and he knew that was a bathroom and there wasn't gonna be a way out of the bathroom. So he just kept pushing down the hall and they found the bonus room, secluded themselves, and then by that time, um, there were ladders thrown um, to, to, to uh, facilitate their escape. Unfortunately, the lieutenant uh, from the ladder was on the opposite end of the house, basically in and over top of the fire, and had to beat his way out of, of, the, of the building by, by removing a window. Um, and um, as, as as it goes, the story, he bailed out. He was literally on fire. He landed on the deck below where the fire started that was also on fire and then bounced uh, to, the, to the ground. Um, <clears throat> we felt certain that his, we knew his burns were severe, but he fortunately kept his breathing apparatus on. Lesson learned. He kept that breathing apparatus on, so his, his, uh, his windpipe, everything, uh, Trachea, esophagus, everything was not, he didn't have soot and he wasn't exposed to those gases, which would have um, probably caused him severe edema. He had to unfortunately retire uh, from the fire department. Uh, the other three made recoveries and um, just one of those incidents that, you know, I wasn't the fire chief, but I'd, I'd begin looking at these fires and this construction and I just, it just is, you know, you could predict this with what we were seeing on other other house fires that we'd had under the under the newer construction, particularly with the, everything being synthetic on the you know furnishings and, and finishes side. So, um, you know, I, I was I was motivated even more that that we should be sprinkling all these all these homes and uh, but you know you know where that goes in Virginia. Yep. And uh, I think that was kind of one of the big things where we connected hearing that story um, back when we were starting to get involved in the code development cycles, either in Virginia or at ICC, which is where the, where the model codes were developed right. and got into the residential sprinkler effort uh, nationally. And uh, I, I don't want to point, I want to point this out to the listeners, all those dates, those times, uh, Chief Brower is not operating from notes that that incident stuck in his mind so much that he remembers that level of detail sitting here at a, at a kitchen table literally off the cuff because we didn't talk about that before we came in here so uh, I think that just speaks volumes as to the impact that type of incident had or that incident had on him so thank you for sharing those mm -hmm. um, talk if you will about um, that transition from fire marshal to fire chief what, what do you think was the biggest difference in wearing those two different hats I think that that um, <clears throat> I think that the position of fire marshal um, requires you to think and look at things 
much more differently from that community risk perspective. Um, it's no longer about jumping on the fire truck and, and running down the road. <clears throat> I mean, it is, but the perspective is, well, wait a minute, we don't want to do that. Uh, we want to prevent that fire. We want to reduce that risk to the firefighter. We want to protect the community's tax base. Um, we want to make sure, you know, revenue is not inhibited by a fire. We want to make sure people are still not, are still working because they, they're, they're, their job hasn't been, they haven't been laid off because their business burned down. Um, so I think it's more of a, a broad-based community view uh, that maybe doesn't, you don't have directly so much in the, in the operations side. And I think that understanding the risk side of things, being involved with the risk side of things on a daily basis uh, positions one to um, trend, make that transition. Um, there's, there's a good chance you already have a, a rapport with your board of supervisors or town councils because every time you uh, do code enforcement, somebody's calling them up complaining. So you already, <clears throat> you already have that rapport. But I think that the good side of that is when you're able to explain to a, a, a board member or a town councilman, well, here's the code and here's what can happen and here's, here's what that ripple effect looks like. And here's why we want to do, here's why we do what we do. And unless they just don't get it, um, they, they, they understand. And then they really, what I saw is board members appreciating the explanation. Well, I never knew that. And I never thought about it like that. And I didn't know this was a law or whatever. If you took the time to explain to them. So... You know, I, I had that I had that rapport as the fire marshal, fortunately, and um, but I think overall, you know, every fire chief should be involved in fire prevention directly. They should have um, some level of code enforcement um, experience, and they should be well aware of what goes on in a fire investigation. If they don't, they're going to be uh, they're going to be talking to the media, uh, and they're going to indirectly or directly give their observations, which a good defense attorney is going to pick up on. Um, so you learn to defer anything regarding an investigation to the to the fire marshal. It's under investigation. Can't tell you anymore. Even if you know what you want to tell. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's To me, uh, and I know everybody's different, but for me it created a broader base to allow me to step in and, and you know, do what needed to be done and function in that political world uh, a little bit better. Gave me an edge. Gotcha. We've been uh, at it almost an hour now. Um, two last things. Uh, you, when did you retire? You retired in April 1st, 2018. 18. So just over a couple of years now. And uh, you didn't completely step away from the fire service. You've been doing a lot of work, particularly recently, even on COVID with uh, National Fallen Firefighters. You yeah. want to talk about them a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I was fortunate to be asked to uh, represent the um, National Fallen Firefighters Foundation on the Vision 2020 project steering committee. Uh, Vision 2020 is um, a project uh, the International Association of Fire Engineers, um, IFE, um, that has over the years developed a, a model community risk reduction program um, and affords um, fire department organizations 
a training on how to uh, you know prepare uh, for all community risks, predominantly fire, but slips and falls, um, the whole range of accident prevention, car car seat installations. <clears throat> so the foundation has a uh, has a seat on that, and they do a vast uh, amount of training, um, and have five have developed five strategies for. Uh, enhancing um, risk reduction. Uh, they can be found online. More information is uh, www.strategicfire.org uh, if you want to learn more about Vision 2020. But um, I'd been going uh, to those uh, conferences because they were already always very interesting. They started out under the uh, United States Fire Administration under the E-Parade or the Parade, the parade, con- yeah, parade yeah. Conferences, excuse me. Uh, and then that that morphed over to, to the organization of Vision 2020. Uh, so I represent uh, the foundation, and you might ask, well, what is, the, what is the tie with a prevention orientation and the Firefighter Foundation? Well, part of the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation mission is not only to honor uh, and support the families of, of, uh, of those who have lost their lives uh, fighting fire line of duty deaths, but it's also to provide education so that we um, are able to focus on safety and health of the firefighters. And then within that specific realm is um, a heavy emphasis on prevention. The logic is pretty simple. If you prevent or mitigate the incident, you reduce the risk to the firefighter. Yes, we all know stop, drop, and roll, um, cooking fire safety, all those things are for the public. But... In reality, if we're good at that, we reduce that risk to the firefighters. So that's what um, I've been doing a lot of a lot of work um, for them. Um, you know, content writing because we can't really right now get out and train. They have an excellent outreach training program under the Advocate Program uh, that's built around the Everyone Goes Home 16 Firefighter Life Safety Initiatives um, that are that are out there trying to have firefighters develop best practices. Uh, particularly in the interest of health and safety. So we're doing a lot of, uh, we're Zoomed out. Uh, we do a lot of uh, yeah, meetings and trainings. Everybody's Zoomed online. out these days, yeah. Yeah. So um, so that's been uh, occupying uh, my time with a couple of other things I'm doing. And hopefully uh, this year we'll be able to get out and uh, release some training, do some physical in-person training. Yeah. Together again, I think the last time we were in the same place at the same time was a Vision 2020 Symposium uh, in Tennessee back uh, last year. Yep, about a little, right out a year ago. Yep. Now with that, I'm going to ask you the one last question that um, kind of has become a staple of the podcast. And um, I've gotten a lot of very interesting responses to this. Is if, um, if you have five minutes with a graduating fire academy tomorrow, uh, what, what advice would you give them? as a f- almost 50-year uh, member of the fire service, what advice would you give them to make them successful or help them be successful in their careers? One of the nice things that, that uh, about being the fire chief is I, I kind of got to, um, I guess, create the rule I wanted to create uh, for that exact uh, opportunity to talk to recruits. So on the night of recruit school, graduation, um, and, and I would always kick recruit schools off. Uh, we, we had parents 
um, you know, parents, significant others were invited. And, uh, you know, we, they kind of got the lay of the land from the fire chief and then they got their recruit school rules and then 22 weeks later or so they, they would graduate. So I had time with them on the front end a little bit, but their night of graduation was my time. And um, being a proponent of the everyone goes home philosophy and having been through Meadowood, having been through the experience in an adjacent county, Prince William County a year earlier with the fatality, a firefighter killed in, a, in the line of duty, Kyle Wilson in Prince William County, Virginia. Um, you know, my thing is I want you to go home. And uh, so I had arranged with um, the foundation to always have on hand uh, a stack of the black bracelets um, that, that basically that you're wearing right now that I'm wearing right now. Everyone goes home. And uh, I believe in that. And um, so it was my time to talk to them about um, a you made it. Congratulations. I wish you a long and, uh, and healthy career. B, you need to take care of yourself physically, mentally. Um, and you, you, you need to pay attention to the hazards that are out there. They'd heard this a million times, but they're hearing it from me directly. And so, uh, you know, I would spend 10, 15 minutes with them and, uh, and discuss their, their safety and give them a, a black wristband. The other thing I told them <clears throat> was that um, you need to respect the uniform in the patch because there's been a lot of people in, that have worked a lot of hard hours, sacrificed, suffered, died uh, for this patch, and you need, to, you need to honor that in all your actions. And oh, by the way, <clears throat> your actions are not only what you do on shift, your actions a reflective off-duty as well um, and and we had folks that got that and we had folks that didn't get that but I told him as sure as as sure as rain um, if they're out and they're 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 doing something they shouldn't be doing uh, particularly wearing a component of the department uniform t-shirt or sweatshirt that that newspaper report is not going to say uh, Joe Smith, you know, was picked up on a DUI or something like that. It's going to say Joe Smith, comma, member of the Loudoun County Combined Fire and Rescue System or member of the ABC Volunteer Fire Company um, was picked up for, you know, for DUI. Um, the media is real good um, in their general reporting, but they're also real good about you know, drawing the hype to, uh, to a person held in the highest of public regard. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it was that opportunity to, to tell them to honor the uniform, to be safe, to honor the uniform, and to protect the integrity of our system and our service. Um, that was my one-on-one -on -one with them. I, and I, I think that's the, one of the coolest things I was able to do. Well, Lee, that's a, a little bit of a different perspective from uh, you're the first fire chief I've had on the podcast, although we're, we're still in the early phases of uh, this. You're the first fire chief, and that's a little bit of a different perspective from some of the other officers and the firefighters that have been on so far. So uh, I appreciate that, and thanks for thanks for sharing. And um, 
again, thanks for being here. Um, and again, thanks, thanks for having me down. I'm on the road finally driving, um, taking a trip south to get away from the snow. Hey, you know, Northern Command, Southern Command. Uh, <laughs> That's right? right, the I'm Northern glad, Office. Glad you're here. That's right. Somewhere, somewhere warmer, even though it's going to be cold where I'm going even uh, as yeah. far south. Um, so with that, I'll uh, give a shout-out to everybody who's downloaded and listened to the podcast. I've uh, continued to get text messages and emails and, and Facebook messages from everybody saying how much they're enjoying it and, uh, and with suggestions on topics uh, to, to come for in the future. And I uh, really do appreciate those and appreciate the words and uh, look forward to any suggestions. So if you do have any suggestions for uh, topics or just want to give us some feedback, uh, the email address is firehouselogbook at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at FD Logbook. Instagram is FD Logbook Podcast. And there's a webpage where you can listen to the to the episodes, all of them. And it's uh, the Firehouse Logbook Podcast, the, the Firehouse Logbook dot Captivate dot FM. And uh, the probably the most active place we're at now is on Facebook. Uh, we've got a, a Facebook page. If you just search FD Logbook or Firehouse Logbook Podcast, you'll find us on there. Make sure you like that Facebook page. Follow it. Give us comments there and uh, rate us on, particularly on uh, Apple Podcasts and whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Uh, We certainly appreciate that and look forward to the feedback uh, and sharing this information. So with that, uh, Chief Brower, appreciate uh, the hospitality. Yep, you're quite welcome. Appreciate the time sitting here today and uh, we did hear a couple of jets go over. There's a Marine Air Station uh, not too far from here, and the sound of freedom went over, and uh, uh, your clock collection was ringing in the background. So it adds a little <laughs> authenticity to the studio here. So thanks yeah, but again. the home sprinkler system didn't go off. So oh, that's right. Time. I did mean to say that. Uh, yeah. He he did uh, install a sprinkler system in his home here, so I will be uh, staying in a sprinklered residence uh, this evening and feel, feeling much safer. So uh, with that... Chief, thanks, uh, and let's go grab some dinner. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Right.